Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the witness of Stephen and those uh, whose call on their lives has been to die uh, for their faith and for the witness that they have offered to us through the years. And Lord, especially uh, the fact that we stand on their shoulders. Uh, Lord, intervene uh, in our lives and give us the boldness to confess your name uh, despite what opposition may come our way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would someone be willing to pull the doors shut? I think the choir back there is partying, so I don't want to interrupt. Uh, don't want to interrupt that. Okay. Okay. Then we are uh, looking at uh, Stephen. Two weeks ago, we heard uh, Stephen's sermon uh, to uh, everybody who uh, was around him at the time, the Pharisees, the scribes. And uh, he, he preached it with boldness, and uh, he clearly pressed on a bruise uh, because they uh, reacted in a pretty significant way. Um, so his final words were, You who receive the law is delivered by angels and did not keep it. And it says now, this is chapter 7, verse 54, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, his listeners, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. Uh, The word of the Lord. Uh, So um, it's it's a pretty vivid scene of of Stephen preaching this sermon. And after they hear it, their reaction is they clench their jaws and they actually stop their ears. They, they don't want to hear another word of it, and they run headlong at, at Stephen, uh, who, up to this point, was probably the most well-loved person in Jerusalem. Remember, he had a wonderful healing ministry, and he had a preaching ministry, and the two weren't divorced of one another, but were one and the same. And for a while, people thought, you know what, the healing ministry is great. I love that. Uh, but when he'd start to preach, they'd sort of roll their eyes and say, well, you know, whatever. Uh, but uh, in this instance, uh, they call him to account, and maybe they thought, you know, if we just talk to Stephen, maybe he'd give up on the preaching and stick with the healing ministry. But instead, he preaches this amazing sermon, and uh, the result uh, was, uh, was his death. Um, this is a, we think of this as this is a crazy story, uh, and yet what I hope that we can see is that this is actually not a rare occurrence. Um, it is thankfully at the advent. Uh, I've never been pulled down and killed uh, yet uh, out of the pulpit. But one of the quotes that really has struck me recently, about three or four years ago, uh, Cardinal uh, George, who's the, arch, who's the cardinal and runs the Archdiocese of Chicago, was talking to his clergy, and he made some off-the-cuff remarks. And his quote was, and nobody, somebody wrote it down there, one of the priests and whoever edits their diocese and newspaper. But he didn't have any prepared remarks. But he, someone asked him a question about how do we engage with the culture, especially a culture that's seemingly 
more and more hostile to the gospel. And Cardinal George said, I will die in my bed. My successor will die in a prison cell. The person who follows him will die a public execution. And then his successor will be left to pick up the pieces of a broken and fallen society and culture. And when I first heard it, I thought, that's a little extreme, you know. I, I thought that, you know, that, but, um, but because of the Internet and, and the more that I read of going on, not just in our world, but, but in our own nation, that may not be too far from the truth of where, where will our nation be, our world be, uh, in 30 or, or 40 years' time, if history tells us everything, is that things can, can move on a dime easily. And so he actually, uh, you know, maybe uh, I have more of a rose-colored view than he does, uh, and it may not work out exactly how it does, but I think that he is putting his finger on, on what's going on in the church, and it's not his idea. It's something that's actually gone on since the beginning. And so here we have in Acts chapter 7, uh, Stephen being killed uh, over, over the gospel. Uh, it had really nothing to do with Stephen. They seem to like Stephen as a person, but because of his faith in Jesus, he becomes uh, the, the first martyr uh, in the church. Uh, indeed, uh, this morning, I just kind of want to go through and, and look at... Um, what, where am I? Uh, yeah, nobody in that picture actually gets killed. Actually, one person does, uh, but, yeah, but I'm not. Yeah, well, hey, actually, uh, Cranmer's in that picture, but we're going to get to him later. So this is a, a picture of uh, St. Peter being uh, crucified. He was uh, martyred um, in Rome. And uh, that was under uh, Nero. And a lot of you may actually know what happened. Uh, you've heard the phrase, uh, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Uh, there was a great fire that broke out in Rome. And who did Nero blame for it? Christians, right. He blamed the Christians for it. And that's why, uh, if you read like Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Paul will be talking about knowing certain people in the Christian church in Rome who are now in Ephesus. And that's because they're now in Ephesus because they left during the Nero's persecution. And uh, actually, there's a lot of historical evidence to suggest that Nero himself had the fire started. Uh, it's sort of like, um, uh, you know, if you're not doing well politically, uh, a war is a good thing, right? Especially a war that's going well, something that you... And so uh, he was able to use the fire to his advantage. And uh, there's a story, which I have no reason to doubt, because this was Peter's life, that when the persecution broke out, Peter was the leader of the church in Rome, and he begins to head out. Uh, and on the outskirts of Rome, beyond the walls, uh, on his way to safety, uh, the Lord speaks to him and says, Peter, where are you going? And Peter turns his horse around and heads back to Rome. And there's a church there today, uh, in whatever it is in Latin, but it's like the church where Peter turned around. Ink, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> LLC. Um, but uh, but uh, Peter uh, knowing, I mean, that, that's the story of Peter, right? That I mean, Peter uh, getting so much of it right, but getting so much of it wrong. And you can see him dropping his head and turning back to Rome. And when he goes back to Rome to a certain death, um, he said that he was not worthy to be crucified in the same way as Jesus. And so he was crucified upside down. 
Uh, James, the son of Zebedee, we actually will read about this. Uh, Herod Agrippa um, uh, has uh, him put to death. Um, John, of course, uh, they tried to boil him alive in oil, and he survived, and so was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Uh, Andrew uh, was, uh, was um, Greece and an Asia minor, and uh, he was crucified. Uh, Philip, uh, they actually found Philip's tomb in Turkey. Uh, he was, um, uh, we don't know uh, how he died, but it's been... Uh, the idea is that he was martyred as well. Uh, Matthew died a martyr in Ethiopia. Thomas uh, got speared to death in India, and uh, and so on uh, and so forth. James Alpheus, another apostle, he was stoned uh, and then had his uh, head beaten in by a club. And then uh, Jude, also called Thaddeus, uh, died uh, somewhere in what is now Iran, a martyr's death. And so if you were an apostle, it was a pretty good, I mean, you are going to die. Uh, you are going to die for your faith. And that's because when uh, the rest of the world encountered Christianity, it was unlike anything that they've ever heard. And one of the things that we see in the book of Acts are very definitive reactions to Christianity. Either this is the best news that I've ever heard in my life, this is exactly what I need to hear. Or I'm going to stop my ears up because I can't handle it. I can't stand it. And you see that in Jesus' ministry. Because remember at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, uh, the big crowd that was around Jesus were the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious conservatives of the day, so much so that Nicodemus goes to visit Jesus even though in the middle of the night, people are interested because in early in John's gospel, Jesus overturned some money tables in the temple courts. And so all the religious conservatives thought, this is our guy. This is our guy. And so Nicodemus, uh, this institutional figure, goes to see Jesus. And, uh, and he's expecting this very sort of finite, I'm here to rid us of Roman rule and to establish the kingdom of Israel again here on earth. And uh, he gets these crazy statements like you must be born again and Nicodemus is like are, have you been drinking <laughs> like uh, what what and so Nicodemus goes away confused and as Jesus ministry goes on uh, that group begins to ebb but the group that is on the rise and the, what finally gets everybody's goat about Jesus is that here is somebody who hangs out with sinners and tax collectors so when Jesus tells parables about the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son, um, all the sinners and tax collectors are shaking their head yes. Like, I get that. I know what it feels like to look at the pods in the pig trough and to long for home. I know what it feels like to be the sheep who has gone astray. The Pharisees hear that and they think, well, what about the 99? You just totally ditched to go after the one, right? I think about that sometimes. Or, but what about the, the, the older son? This is not fair. This is not fair. And so finally they get to the point where they say, uh, we, this is a hard saying. Who can bear this? And they begin to plot as to ways in which they might kill Jesus. And so this word to the broken down is what the world reacts so violently against because what the world loves is power, Right? Our lives are all about putting ourselves in a position of strength, not coming from a place of weakness. And yet Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself uh, and take up his cross daily and follow me. That is that you have to put yourself on the line and say, uh, 
I've tried <laughs> to make it in life, but it isn't working. It's just not working. And so, uh, God, I give up. You have to come and you have to take over. You have to come and seek me because now I realize that I'm lost. And there's no way for me to get back home unless you come and see me. And so the non-Christian hears this and they don't know what to do with it. Indeed, I've mentioned this before, but it's always worth mentioning again. In the Roman world, the Romans outlawed Christianity for a crazy reason. Because Romans thought that Christians were atheists. Because they weren't religious enough. Because a Roman citizen would have a conversation with a Christian. They would say, hey, I hear you're a Christian. Where's your temple? Well, we, we, we have no temple. Uh, we, the God himself actually inhabits us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, if you don't have any temple, what, what about your priests? Well, we actually don't have any priest. It's a priesthood of, of all believers. And, and so we gather together and we worship the Lord and we have leaders, but, but not in the same way that you have priests at your temple to Athena. You have no, no temple, no priest. Well, what about sacrifices? Well, we don't sacrifice anything because there's been one who has been sacrificed once and for all for the sins of the world. And the Roman hears this and thinks, atheist. Right, I mean, that, that's what they thought. And so there was an overall ban against uh, Christianity. And not only that, we see it in the book of Acts, that wherever the gospel was going, it was turning the world on its ear. Right? So even in terms of commerce, when Paul is in Ephesus, he begins to preach, and there's a temple there. And the, outside of the temple, there were these silversmiths who made little trinkets, like, all, I went to the temple and all I got was this t-shirt kind of stuff, it, literally. And, um, and so, like, a, you know, you go to, like, Mount Vernon and they give you, like, this little pewter Mount Vernon. Like, oh, that's great. Uh, and and uh, St. Paul begins to preach and people start getting converted. And it took a, the silversmith trade took a huge hit. And so the union, I don't know if you know this, that actually Christianity was outlawed under some of the same laws that outlawed unions in uh you can see Caesar now. Our empire will be a right-to-work empire. Anyway, so they outlawed a lot of the unions, and so the silversmith union got together, and they said, we are going to, let's kill them, because they're killing our business. And so uh, wherever Christianity began to touch, it, it, it upset the apple cart, and so the feeling of the Romans was, this Christianity is turning everything on its ear. And it wasn't until 313... 313, uh, almost 300 years after Je- or 200 years, uh, 300 years after Jesus, that um, that Christianity was finally tolerated once and for all, not officially sanctioned, but said, if you want to be a Christian, that's fine. Well, there was a lot of water over the dam uh, before 313 when Constantine and uh, Licinius issued that edict, um, but. Even after that, when everyone thought that it would be free and going and easy, now that we're enjoying a tolerated status and eventually would, uh, would get uh, an official uh, status. Um, where'd he go? Okay. Um, and, uh, and so one of the things that, that happened was that in Christianity, a lot of heresy started to break out. And so all of a sudden, you do see this in the book of Acts, that... Uh, and Luther said this, that the church is always reforming, right? That the gospel has a, a dual, um, 
it's a double-edged sword. One, you have a polemic to the church and you have a polemic to the world. And so even when you preach the gospel in the church, you're going to get resistance and you're going to get some feedback regardless. And uh, so what was happening is that the threat shifted shortly after uh, toleration. Uh, that The threat was not so much outside of the church. Like, you know, people might be like, I'm worried about Vikings. <laughs> right? I, you know, I, I wake up in the middle of the night worrying about Vikings taking over my village. Uh, but actually where it shifted was to the church itself because a lot of crazy ideas started to come out of the, the church itself. And one of those places was in North Africa, the Donatist. So in North Africa, if you've ever been, it's very strange and eerie. So if you go to Carthage, you can actually go to the cathedral, which is now just a museum, uh, and there, there's actually the tomb of St. Louis. Right? So if you're a Cardinals fan, uh, you can you actually go, uh, go see the, the tomb of St. He's, uh, most of them is in there. Um, um, there's a very funny story. Uh, have I told you that there's an order of nuns that keeps the relics in Rome? That's their job. And uh, I had a professor in college named Augustine Thompson, who was an Augustinian monk. And it used to be you could just kind of waltz in and say, I'd like a relic of St. Thomas Aquinas. And then they'd like take a little flake off, and, and then they'd give it to you in a little vial, and you'd, you know, there you'd go on your merry way. But uh, clearly they had to regulate, so now you need a letter from your bishop and all that. So he went through all that rigmarole and shows up to the nuns and says, uh, I'd like a relic of St. Augustine. And the nun looks up at him with such a sweet face and says, Oh, Father, I am so sorry. We ran out of him a long time ago. Um, so, but there's a lot of St. Louis left, um, controlled by the Tunisian government. And, um, but you go in, and in Latin, around the top of the cathedral, it says, Surely after the Sea of Rome, Carthage is greatest. So the second most important bishopric in the entire church at one point in time was North Africa and Carthage. And now you look at it today, and there are no Christians. Almost. There are a couple expatriate churches. So there's, if you go to Carthage today, there is a church there um, and a couple little Roman Catholic churches. Uh, but those churches basically cater to the French-speaking and the English-speaking, there is a, an Anglican church there, uh, to the, the, the English-speaking um, diplomatic corps uh, there in, in Carthage and in Tunis. And so there you are in this great cathedral, and you look down the hill, and you see the Punic ports, and, and you see the outlines of these ancient cathedrals where Augustine preached. And of course, there in... Um, uh, in, um, there in Carthage, uh, one of the first records of martyrs in the church were, for, were Felicity and Pe uh, Perpetua, uh, where they were, uh, were martyred. And uh, you can go online, you can read it. Uh, it's a, a pretty remarkable story. Uh, but what you found out is that, one, I mean, martyrdom in the early church was a badge of honor, and there's some thought that some people kind of gravitated toward it and they kind of wanted it. Um, uh, but being a Christian was serious business. Um, and yeah, they could, have, they could have lied and said, you know, um, uh, we're, uh, we're not Christians and gone on their merry way. But instead, they were honest about their faith and continued, continued on. And so there in North Africa, which used to be this cradle of Christianity uh, where Augustine was born, and around the time of Augustine, a huge um, persecution broke out. And 
in the church, and a lot of Christians capitulated. And one of the things that the persecuting authorities made Christians do was to bring their Bibles and burn them. And so they would have these public Bible burnings or any religious text that was Christian. And uh, when the persecution finally went away and Christianity was back on the rise again and was cemented, the church now looked at those who had capitulated and burned the religious texts and they said, you're not welcome in the church anymore. That the church is actually just made up of saints and not sinners. And the Latin word for, for handing something over, traditor, right? Handing o- literally it meant handing over the book. That where we get our word traitor, right? So that actually has a, a, a negative Christian origin. So they said that if you had your if you burned your text because of persecution, you were no longer welcome in the church. And of course, there was a huge debate that broke out in the church. Uh, Augustine uh, wrote a lot about it, uh, about how the church really is a mix of saint and sinner. It's God sort of separates the wheat from the chaff, but. In the moment, if you were a a Christian, even a broken Christian in North Africa, you were getting it from both sides. The church didn't want you. The world didn't want you. The Donatists were definitely wrong, but you found yourself a theological minority in spite of the fact that you were an Orthodox Christian. And so even when Christianity sort of makes itself more institutional and somewhat more palatable, Christians are still going to find themselves persecuted and even shut out of the church in which they serve. And for a long time, that is really what happened. So, oh, that's not good at all. I should look at these before. They look great on my computer if you ever come up here. Um, But if you look, this is Latimer and Ridley uh, burning in Oxford. Uh, Both of them bishops in the Church of England at the time of Edward VI. Edward VI is a sickly little boy, and he dies. And, uh, and yet, he actually, in spite of being a young man, knew what he was talking about and so set everything up. We're not even going to get into poor Lady Jane uh, Grey. Uh, but uh, Latimer and Ridley were uh, great preachers of the day in the Church of England. And because they were the mouthpiece of the Reformation in England, uh, Queen Mary, also known as... Only Episcopalians get that right out of the gate. I don't know why. <laughs> Um, but uh, Bloody Mary, of course, uh, has them burn, and uh, Latimer says to Ridley, uh, be of good cheer, Master Ridley, for today we light a candle in England that will never go out. So true, that's true. So uh, I don't know if they saw him, uh, but while they were being burned, Thomas Cranmer was led to the top of the prison tower, which overlooked the stake, And Thomas Cranmer had to watch them being burned. Cranmer was a very old man when he saw this. And uh, he, uh, after not being allowed to sleep for days, signed a capitulation at Christ Church, Oxford. You can can actually go, the the tower's still there. You can see the cell where he stayed, and you can go up to the roof and watch where he saw the martyrs being burned. He signed the capitulation at Christ Church uh, College and Cathedral. And then they said, this is great. And they said, furthermore, we want to humiliate you. We're probably still going to kill you, uh, but we want you to preach a sermon about you capitulating uh, to, uh, to heresy and to say that we're right and you're wrong. And so they march him up to the university church, and they put him up on stage. They actually removed a pillar from university church, which you can see today, and they put him up on stage, and the old man gets up, 
and he preaches the gospel. Uh, God will give you a million chances, <laughs> right? And so, uh, so I, at that point, I, I don't see him as a turncoat. But anyway, so he, uh, so he gets up and he preaches the gospel. And what do they do? So, tell me if this sounds familiar. They stop their ears and they grab him and they drag this old man to the site where Latimer, that's where they burned everybody. Cambridge trained them, Oxford killed them. And uh, believe me, I know it. So they, they drag him to the same place, and you can see as the flames start to rise, the eyewitnesses said that Cranmer held out his right hand and allowed it to burn first, for it was the hand that hast offended. It was the one that signed the capitulation. Uh, so uh, everybody's uh, watching this uh, go on, and of course it would be some years uh, that would happen. And, and the, this... This sort of stance for the Christian faith, and it wasn't, it, it had political implications, uh, but the reason why these men and these women were willing to die is because it meant everything to them, and they understood that people's lives eternally were on the line. Fitzsimmons Allison wrote a book called The Cruelty of Heresy, and that is that false Christian teaching, or false teaching in general, is cruel. It's cruel. It leads people astray and leads them down a road. Uh, where there is no salvation. And at best, they kind of have to look in on themselves. And so for Cranmer and Latimer and Ridley and all the others that Mary burned or beheaded, it uh, was more than just, and, and a lot of people did flee. They did flee. And Henry VIII was no better. I, I'm not going to paint him in a, I mean, he was having people done off with for having Bibles in English. So these things that we take for granted now, like the radical idea that you would have a Bible in English, people were dying for that. And they were dying so that people like you and me, hundreds of years later, could have what is one of the most accessible things in America. I mean, go to the Tutwiler, open up the drawer, there's the Bible, right? There it is. It's, it's, it's pretty much everywhere in the United States. You can get your hands on it, uh, although that's not the case around the world. But these were matters uh, of, of, of a serious nature because what was happening, and this has been the nature of heresy all along the way, and even when Christianity butted up against Roman polytheism or any other ism, is that Christianity taught that if you're going to be saved, if you're going to understand how life works and you're going to be able to exhaust life of its fullest, it's all because it's a gift from God and because God is graceful and loves you. Everything else taught and teaches, if you're going to get by in life, and if you're going to have a relationship with God, if you're going to make it into heaven, you've got to try real hard. You've got to try real hard. And there are going to be, there's going to be a lot of extra credit, so you shouldn't worry. So that's kind of what sparked everything. Remember, Luther, the Reformation was sparked. Luther, who they tried to kill a lot, um, but... Luther went to Rome on a pilgrimage, which was supposed to be this high spiritual experience, and he came back and was disgusted because he saw these poor families emptying their pockets uh, in order to have somebody at the Vatican uh, pray for them uh, to get into heaven or pray for their dead mom or dad in order to get into heaven. They were going to Rome in order to crawl up steps, and it was while Luther was crawling up some steps on his knees in order to earn God's favor when you know, he's calling to mind the, the righteous shall live by faith. Abraham believed, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. 
And so Luther, uh, and by the way, so the indulgence controversy, which was what sparked the Reformation, all of that money that was collected from these Christians in Europe and elsewhere, do you know what it was used for? It paid for the Sistine Chapel. It paid for St. Peter's Basilica and uh, paid Michelangelo's fee for the Sistine Chapel. So if you're an art fan, I guess it worked out. Uh, But nonetheless... Luther gets back to Germany and begins to write uh, about God's grace and God's love uh, for the sinner and that if you're going to be in relationship with God, if you're going to get into heaven, it actually has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to to do with God's gracious act through Jesus Christ. And the result? They stopped up their ears. So if you've never seen the movie uh, with one of the fines, uh, Ralph? No, who's the other one? Luther. Just go see Luther. Um, It's a great movie and and worth seeing. And so you have the deaths. Things started to settle down a little bit uh, in England. And just when everybody thought that, you know, Christianity's hunky-dory. We've we've come into this wonderful world of of toleration and liberality and generosity. Uh, World War II happens. And this is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And uh, he was a theologian in the Lutheran Church in Germany. And uh, as uh, right before Hitler came to power in Germany in the 30s, Luther, I mean, uh, Bonhoeffer came over to America to teach at Union Seminary in um, in uh, in New York City. And Bonhoeffer felt this powerful call in his life to go back to Germany. And of course, the Niebuhrs and everybody else who were there, who was also German, said. You know if you go back, they're going to kill you. And he said, I'm afraid so. So Bonhoeffer actually goes all the way back. And he was, uh, and this is, have you ever seen the movie Valkyrie? It's a good movie. It's a good movie. But do you know what it totally misses out on? Every person who was involved in the plot to assassinate Hitler was a Christian. Bonhoeffer was actually uh, condemned to death because of his implication in the Valkyrie plot. He was actually intimately involved. And so that's completely and totally lost. The the groups that were involved were the German nobility, who were committed believers in the Lord, and Christians. And Bonhoeffer was part of what was called the Confessing Church in Germany, which was the underground church that said that Jesus is the head of the church, not the Fuhrer. Not the Fuhrer. And so if they weren't shot, one of the things that was happening is that, um, uh, and you can read about this, is that what Hitler was doing with these Christians that were involved in the underground movement to get rid of him, uh, they, he would have them uh, strung up on piano strings until dead. Um, so that is the brutality with which he reacted toward the Christian church uh, who was attempting to undermine his authority and leadership in Germany. And indeed, Bonhoeffer would be condemned to death on April 8th, 1945, and he would be, uh, he was in a concentration camp, he was stripped naked, and he was uh, hanged at, on April 9th, and two weeks later, Allied soldiers liberated that concentration camp. And yet, um, these Christians, uh, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't about them. Uh, they saw the gospel shining in a very dark place, right? Where the light shines, there can be no darkness. And at the end of the day, Bonhoeffer would die, uh, but the word of the Lord endures forever. I mean, that is one of the things that I see about the conviction of people who are dying for their faith, is that 
there is Jesus. Right? Uh, we've read the end of the book. He wins. Right? I mean, that there's this... Like, nothing, nothing can undo his lordship. Our job is to simply stand in the gap and to hold out those who are like lemmings being led astray. I mean, that is one of the most frightening things uh, about Germany during World War II is that it wasn't this nation of really awful, mean Germans. But people like you and me, who allowed millions of people to be led to their deaths, and just to sort of get along, go along to get along, and yet there were people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and other Christians uh, who stood in the gap and paid with it uh, for uh, their life. Indeed, there is uh, the wolf slayer that was blown up. Uh, it looks like I got these images off of Atari. Uh, it was like, this is the Wolf Slayer game. Uh, of course, that was the bomb that went off that, uh, that Tom Cruise planted. Janani uh, Lewum. So, Janani Lewum was the, um, sorry, maybe if I didn't look at him. Uh, he was the Archbishop of Uganda in the 1970s. And uh, Uganda had always had its problems, uh, but then um, a pretty charismatic guy named Idi Amin came to power in Uganda, and most of the country loved it because he was very benevolent uh, to those who, uh, whom he, who agreed with him. And yet, uh, Janani uh, saw a thing for what it is. Right, so that's one of the things about the gospel is it sees the thing as it is and has the honesty to say this is what it is. It doesn't see something that's bad and call it good. It sees something or good and call it bad, but sees a bad thing for what it was. And um, the womb uh, stood in the gap and stood up for his Christian faith. Uh, and um, and and well, he he died for it. In fact. Uh, Lewum and two cabinet ministers in Amin's government uh, were, were kidnapped. Uh, the official report was that, uh, that they were being taken into custody uh, and on a windy, curvy road, they tried to overtake the driver who was driving them to whatever they, they said they were driving to, overtook the driver uh, and crashed the car and everyone in it perished. Uh, and yet when they recovered the bodies, uh, the two cabinet ministers and Lewum's uh, were riddled with bullets. And um, the, the witnesses of, of what was going on uh, said that Amin himself came in and saw the two cabinet ministers and saw Lewum. And where the cabinet ministers' bodies, they had bullets in their bodies, uh, Idi Amin uh, actually shot Lewum through the mouth because he was God's mouthpiece. He was God's mouthpiece. And to this day, Esto um, Karinji, who was also a Ugandan bishop, but he fled to Kenya because he was on the list as well. Um, I've never seen anything like it when I heard this story. And I was in a room with these Ugandan with these Ugandan bishops and Rwandan bishops who had just come out of this terrible genocide, and Nigerian bishops who, who whose lives are on the line daily against 
a militant Islam in the northern part of that country. And Festo Carinji used to, it wasn't him, he had died at this point, but someone was saying, remember when Festo would tell us the story. And someone said, there were about 50 African bishops, they said, tell the story. And one of the Ugandan bishops began to tell the story of Janani the womb, who, even as Amin was about to shoot him, was sharing the gospel with this terrible tyrant. And it drove Amin so mad that he put the gun in Lewom's mouth and pulled the trigger. And I'm hearing the story, and I'm crying. But all the African bishops are on their feet, cheering it on. Testify. Tell us about it. Tell, tell the story. Uh, for, him, for them, this is a manifestation of the very power of God. That where Amin thought that he could end the power of God by taking out a mere man... It turns out to be the very power of God that fuels the church. Uh, indeed, uh, because of the womb's witness, uh, the church in Uganda and indeed uh, most of East Africa uh, is very strong. And they have a tradition of not flinching uh, when it comes to seeing evil for what it is. And even today, friends like Archbishop Ben Kwashi, who has been kidnapped uh, by militants, um, they know that their lives are on, their li on the line, uh, but they remember people like Peter, Felicity and P Perpetua, Janani, uh, that uh, God is much bigger than any person's ministry. And indeed, even today, uh, in places like uh, Iraq and Syria, this is a bombed-out church in Syria that was destroyed by ISIS militants, and um, I'm going to warn you, this next image is pretty graphic, um, but this is a picture from just a couple weeks ago of two Christians in Iraq who have been crucified. This is not some faraway place, uh, but this is real. And in the world today, there, uh, not to make light of it, but there is uh, a Hereford cartoon that has this apartment building in some big city, and everybody in the apartment building is hashtagging, do something about it. Uh, and I just thought that that was one, I and mean, just everybody else wants somebody else to do something about it. And yet, um, here we are, and what are we to do for our brothers and sisters uh, who are in a much darker place than we are and whose shoulders that we stand on. And of course, the first thing is to pray, uh, to pray for them, but also that the gospel will break through in their persecutors' lives. I mean, we just read about who was holding the coats as Stephen was stoned. Saul, right? And that's, that's what's up next. We're going to hear about all the terrible, dastardly things that Saul does to the church until God gets a hold of them. So we don't know what kind of witness we can have uh, to those who persecute uh, our brothers and sisters. The other thing that you see in the lives of people like Bonhoeffer and Peter and others is that they looked at their, those who would persecute them with compassion. And so even in America, if you meet somebody who is incredibly hostile to the Christian faith, uh, to always put before us the fact that Jesus died for them too because of his great love for them. And 
I pray that God would give me the boldness and the courage to articulate the gospel even when somebody has a gun in my mouth. The other thing is, uh, is uh, you've been to our website. We're actually going to have some more concrete details on how we can help, but we're actually partnering with two ministries there in the Middle East uh, to help rebuild congregations when the time comes for that, and also uh, to uh, help with all of the refugee crisis. Uh, but um, uh, I've also, they were supposed to have been here, they didn't, but I've ordered some little lapel pins and, um, and one of the things that is happening is that in Iraq and Syria, whenever uh, ISIS takes over a home, uh, they, um, they take, if it's a Christian home, they simply seize it. They take it for their own. And, um, and they put an Arabic character uh, that's basically the equivalent of our letter N, which stands for Nazarene. Right, this home once belonged to a Christian, and so uh, we're going to get little pins with actually that symbol made on it, um, and uh, to be able to wear to say that we stand in solidarity uh, with our brothers and sisters who are being uh, who are being uh, persecuted. Um, that uh, pray for the witness of the church. It really astounds me uh, the things that the church in North America gets so worked up about, and that we fight about, including our own Episcopal Church when stuff like this is going on. Shame on us. Uh, So I'm convicted that that we would make sure that we keep first things first and that we understand uh, the power uh, of the gospel. Uh, The last thing I would close with is this, from John chapter 6. Jesus says, um, where am I here? Um, Jesus says, um, Jesus talks about um, uh, eating and feasting on him. And they said, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else do we have to go but to the Lord for our hope and our strength? Amen. Questions, comments, concerns? Very lighthearted class today. Well, I'll just follow that up. I received an email from Father William Wilson, who many of you know from his time here at the Advent, for a request for urgent prayer, where his missionary friends in Iraq received a urgent request for prayer where ISIS had come into their city and as you can imagine the UN fled so we can't depend on the worldly powers but if they uh yeah, there are almost no Christians left in Iraq. Baghdad, there's an Anglican church in Baghdad, a guy named Canon Andrew White, who really has put himself in harm's way innumerable times. Um, uh, he he had to flee. Uh, and he's actually now in Jerusalem. I mean when you have, to, I need to go someplace safer, and it's Jerusalem. Like, okay. He followed that up with a systematic taking the children out of the house to renounce Jesus, and none of the children renounced Jesus, and all of the children That's right. He said a child that he had baptized has now been beheaded. That is a reality in our world, and I guess for myself, I. 
seek to know what I can do besides prayer. But guys, time we'll hear from. Yeah, I mean, I think a, a lot of it too is is awareness. I mean, I think a lot of, I mean, the moment that it falls off of the the feed or the bottom of it, you know, when it's not when it's not there, it's very easy for me to forget, or at least to not not think about it. And um, and so right now there aren't these specific interest stories like we had with um, Miriam Ibrahim. Remember her? She was the Ethiopian woman who was jailed to the and chained to the floor while she cared for her kids because she she was a Christian. And um, and now she's in in England, uh, but. Um, but I mean, nobody's really interested in those stories, and maybe they just can't get to them. But nonetheless, it it's happening, and they're the ISIS or ISIL, whatever you want to call them. They're getting much bolder, much bolder. Andrew, it's my understanding that uh, last week, for the first time in 1623 years, there was not a Christian service done in Nineveh. That's right. Yeah. So there's not. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the Christian presence in Iraq is pretty much. And it's amazing the things that they need. Like I got an email from a refugee guy, and um, and he said, blankets. Like it's it's getting cold. It's getting cold over here at night, and because a lot of them are are out, and um, and it's just it's if they are it's still in Iraq, it's they're up in the Kurdish regions, uh, and of course Turkey's being pretty stingy about. I mean, they've already let a lot of people in. Uh, so there's a huge refugee crisis. England is actually trying very hard to pass a bill that would allow cri- Iraqi Christians to fast-track their way into England for asylum. Um, but it, it's going to be a very long time before, they, if they ever do go back and see Iraq again. It just seems surreal. Like, I mean, can you imagine being like, well, I used to live in Birmingham, and then I, I was persecuted out. We're being really careful. Um, not really. I mean, we're providing some air cover. We're, um, I mean, it's hard. Like we're, but we're being very careful about, you know, the story that was in the news big last week is this this pretty major town on the Turkey-Syrian border that the it's mostly Kurds there, and the Kurdish refugees. A lot of them wanted to go back into Syria in order to try to protect the town, and the Turkish government wasn't allowing that to happen. Um, and um, and U.S. Air Force, we didn't we didn't do anything to protect that town because we didn't. I mean, to be frank, we didn't want to upset the Turks. Um, and so it, it's it, there's a lot of that going on deeper into Iraq. It's just such a wild west that. It, but again, it's just. And I'm not advocating like we need to do this or need to do that. But right now it's airstrikes. But this, again, this is not. This is not a, a political military force where we can like sit down at the Palace of Versailles and be like, okay, we're going to divvy this up. This is a theology. This is a philosophy. This is a worldview that, that tanks aren't going to take care of. Right? So I think that, that is, like, if any, the, the, the answer to this solution is that Jesus gets into people's hearts and changes them. That is the only thing that's going to solve this. Andrew, what are your thoughts on uh the mayor of one of the largest cities in the country trying to intimidate. Oh, yeah. So I thought it was funny that the mayor, I, I, a lot of Christians got bent out of shape by the whole thing that the mayor of Houston wants to subpoena sermons from pastors. 
I'd love to give me, I'll give her every sermon I've ever preached. In fact, I'll invite her, come sit. And part of it is they're in the public domain. Like if if they were smart enough, they'd be able just to get online and listen to the things. Uh, But it it just so, it's crazy. I mean, it's crazy to, I I mean, it is intimidating to think, you know, if if Mayor Bell said, I'm going to subpoena every sermon that you've preached concerning this. And clearly they're looking for, they're trying to edit my, my content. And so I think that that, shows you that maybe Cardinal George wasn't that far off because what if you refuse to, to hand them over? I mean, you're probably going to spend a night or two in jail in, in Houston. So I used to think if we just sat, I used to think that people were reasonable and then I had kids. <laughs> Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.